You can be seated. This morning, uh, children, you can be dismissed uh, to Children's Church. This morning, we have this wonderful opportunity um, to be reminded of the wonder of God, the, the splendor of God, our Lord and our Father, and I think it's helpful for us to confess that so many of our friends and our neighbors do not know him. What we're going to do in the next few moments, which if we're not careful, becomes a bit of a formality, the Lord will guard us from that if we ask him. What we're going to do in the next few moments is completely mysterious to so many people. We are going to rehearse and receive the revelation of our awesome God. The world is created for worship, and so there are gods, small g, that are imagined, that are perceived, but are frankly irrelevant. This past week, I heard that Thanksgiving, while celebrated in several countries, Thanksgiving is seldom celebrated by loyal communists. And when I was told the reason, it made sense to me, for a communist, they put their trust their hopes in the government and its leaders. That becomes their imagined providential deity. But yet woefully irrelevant. We get to see God through Moses' first-hand account. And what we see is a repetition of what we've already seen, but it is a vivid exclamation point in Exodus chapter 11. We, who have seen the revelation of Yahweh, can no longer perceive him as irrelevant, even if we try. We may perceive him as frightening. We might even be tempted to be angry with him, but never irrelevant. Over and over throughout the plagues, we've been allowed to know the testimony of God's sovereignty. His power is revealed in everything, in creation and creature, and over the wishes, the whims, and the will of his creatures. That all comes to this vivid exclamation 
here in the 10th plague. Now, before we stand in a moment to read, let me just remind you of the context that leads us to plague number 10. Sign number 11, plague number 10. As we have considered Exodus as one portion of the Pentateuch, we've been reminded that God had made covenant promise to the descendants of Abraham. God had promised the unfolding action of these plagues. God had repeatedly withheld his full wrath. Remember when God said, how much longer are you going to resist this? You realize that if by now I had chosen, I could wipe you off the face of the earth. And so all of these plagues have been an expression of God's withheld anger. God had taught Moses that all of these plagues were happening for a purpose. That purpose is that the wonders of God would be known to the world. So let's stand this morning and please listen as I read from Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11 and verse 1 the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. We trust that his spirit will add blessing to its reading. You can be seated. 
<clears throat> from this shorter of the chapters that we've been studying, I, I want to lay out four of what I think are the expressions of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, absolute rule and reign. God absolutely rules and reigns. He absolutely rules and reigns over future events. Absolutely rules over his enemies. Absolutely rules over his people. And absolutely rules over our hearts. Those are four that I think we see evident in this chapter. Let's start with the first one. Yahweh absolutely rules over future events. Now, this is significant because we might be tempted to imagine, well, what if I do this or that? For a long time in my life, I lived in a sort of debilitating fear. Maybe you're there, and so it's good for me to share this. For a long time in my life, I was concerned that I might make certain decisions that would lead me into some sort of second-class, acceptable provision of God. For instance, one of those is, what if after high school I chose the wrong college and met the wrong woman and had the wrong children? And that was terrifying to me. And so I would beg for God to let me see what he wanted. The word of God, of course, fixed that and grew me out of that fear, showed me very clearly what the will of God is. It's written down in black and white and sometimes red, both R-E-D and R-E-A-D. Does God sovereignly rule over the future? The Lord says to Moses, yet one more. How can we be sure? What if Pharaoh is still hard-hearted? God says, no, this is the one that I told you about back in Genesis. This is the one that I said was going to happen in Genesis 15, 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with a great possession. Not only does God say, my people are going to be freed from their oppressor, but they're going to come out wealthy. In verses 1 through 3 here of chapter 11, what God told Moses in chapter 3, verse 19, in chapter 7, verse 3, this is all being recounted. Moses recognizes that finally, this is the last warning. These verses bring to our attention that there's a distinction going on between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. I'm going to get back to this near the end of the chapter. But literally, as Moses proclaims this final plague to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's council, his servants, his, his cabinet members, are on a sort of raised platform with Pharaoh around his throne. And there is becoming an obvious distinction between Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt. Pharaoh is holding on to hope 
that he's still in control. The Egyptians have completely lost confidence that Pharaoh's in control. Now, there's a gospel analogy there. When we perceive that we can control the future, I think we hold on to that confidence much longer than when we perceive someone else other than God is controlling our future. That can be taken away easier than our self-confidence. Pharaoh sits on the throne and holds on to hope that he can control what's going to come next. The rest of the Egyptians have seen nine times already that he can't control the future. That he's not in power. God controls the future. Now, would you just just walk through with me the details? This is a little unscripted, so we're going to use our Bible memories here. God controls events. Let's go back to a man named Abram and his elderly wife. You're going to have a son about a year from now. God controls, and he has a son. Take the son and offer him as a sacrifice. God controls the future, and there's a ram. He'll have sons. One, the younger will be loved, the older hated. And all of his buffoonery, the younger will be blessed. And his name will be changed to Israel. And he will have a son and show partiality and favoritism. And, and that son will be despised and sold off into slavery and wind up in Egypt. And for 400 years, the descendants will be enslaved. And every single event had been controlled by God. And as God told Abraham in Genesis 15, all of the future events led to plague number 10. Just as the sovereign God who controls every detail had planned it. I wonder what you trust in. I wonder if you're like Pharaoh who has some trust in yourself. That trust in ourselves sounds like this. I've done more good things than bad things. And friends, that is a really common expression of confidence. I have done more good than bad. I can keep doing more good than bad. And by doing so, I control my future. I I wonder if you're not the person who says, I can control my future, but you say... I think my church can. And if I belong there, then I'll be good. They'll control my future. Or my country can. As long as things go well there, it'll control my future. My parents can. I wonder if you're a person who doesn't necessarily have self-confidence, but peripheral confidence. Confidence in someone else, but not God. Or I wonder if you read this and say, 
there is no one who can control my future providentially other than Yahweh. I wonder if your heart would confess, I can only trust in God. In this chapter, we have the pleasure of the revelation that God sovereignly rules over the future. That is a revelation so many people are unaware of. They imagine a God that is inept, impotent. He exists, maybe, but kind of powerless to do anything. We have this blessed revelation. Moses has it. The people of Israel are encouraged by it. They're fortified in it. Let's go on to the second one. Not only is God sovereign over future events, but God's sovereign over his enemies, which matters, right? Because if God's sovereign over future events, but enemies interfere with his plan, is he still sovereign? So we have to see God sovereign over his enemies. Can God's intentions be undone in the garden? In Egypt. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. From the highest to the least and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Moses makes it clear that he is communicating as a prophet by saying, thus says the Lord. God said, the tenth plague is here. I am going to go into the midst of Egypt at midnight. That's new. That's new. God certainly controlled the hail that came into Egypt, the gnats that went into Egypt, the locusts that went into Egypt, the, the death that came upon the livestock in Egypt. This time, God is going into the midst of Egypt. This represents what I think is the climax of these plagues' severity. Yahweh had certainly caused them, but now Yahweh himself would come visit the homes of Egyptians. God's announcement is that death would occur at midnight. Um, a couple of things. I'm, I'm unsure that we're supposed to understand about Midnight, because midnight is in, it's an emphatic expression. I'm unsure we're supposed to understand vagueness. I think it's possible that at about midnight it's going to be realized what has happened. Would you would you take a minute and perceive with me the events of that night? When the night was its darkest, when the sun god, Ra, 
had gone off as they perceived it to do battle for the next day, to win for them another day. When their God was away and their their sense of vulnerability was heightened, when the night was the darkest, maybe it was a nursing mother whose only child fell limp and died. And she lets out a scream, waking up a neighbor who gets up to find out what's going on. And like so many of us, if I'm up at night, I look in my oldest daughter's bedroom and my younger daughter's bedroom and make sure that those people I care about most are okay. My son is somewhere, he's fine. And another parent goes to check and finds a firstborn child dead and yells. And then a neighbor nudges a spouse. Did you hear that? Something's going on. And the spouse is dead. And the crying spreads through the land of Egypt about midnight. All of the plagues represent God's restrained wrath, including this one. Not all of the children Not all of the Egyptians, but the firstborn. And I want you to understand that the great cry that's heard in Egypt isn't an anguish of the dying being tormented to death. They perished quietly in their sleep. The God who has prepared a place of eternal punishment where there will be unceasing weeping and crying did not torment the firstborn that way. As I read and studied this this week, of course, you can probably understand and maybe you're thinking as I have right now about the certain mercy of passing quietly in your sleep. That strikes differently these days, doesn't it? And we talk about that. Even in his wrath, it's not hard to see his mercy. The word used here for the great cry There's a great cry in all the land. You know what's amazing to me? That that's the same word back earlier in Exodus when God said, I've heard the cry of my people. And now their oppressors who had made them cry are the ones crying. Our God 
is a God of salvation. And sovereign over his enemies. That great cry, such as there had never been or ever will be again. Egyptians had certainly participated in some sort of mass national mourning. But nothing like this. Incredibly, God had turned the tables. The one who had made his people cry are now crying out in anguish. Let me just let me just address something. Is that fair? Is this plague too much? It seems like we're at a point in the narrative where if God had just killed Pharaoh, the exodus would have happened next. Is this really necessary? Is this even just? Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. The Bible says of Moses, Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. They are my firstborn son. In Exodus chapter 1, we were told that there had been this diabolical plan to murder Israelite children, throwing them into the Nile. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, we read that for 400 years, at the hands of the Egyptians, God's people had cried out. And let's not forget that as we will see in chapter 12, our minds should be going toward the firstborn son of God who dies as a penalty for sin. So is this just? I would suggest entirely. The Bible tells us that it's appointed for us once to die and then to be judged. I wonder, if God is in control of the future and God is sovereign over his enemies, I wonder when it's our time to die and then be judged, I wonder if we'll be judged as enemies who he rules over in his just wrath. Jesus would later describe the judgment of God on his enemies as an eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. As unwelcome as punishment for sin might be in our sin-rationalizing mind, God is most certainly sovereign over his enemies. All of Adam's sinful race has rebelled. Both positionally and practically. In other words, yes, we are first guilty by association. And we validate that guilt in our function. We prove God is righteous by living out what we're positionally guilty of. God is completely righteous to judge his enemies, even in eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I want you to know this morning that God is definitely sovereign over his enemies. But I want to segue into the third one. Sovereign over the future, sovereign over his enemies, but then sovereign over his people. God is sovereign over his children. So I I just finished point number two by talking about the terrible, eternal wrath of God. But Thessalonians reminds us that for all of the wrath that is coming, God has not destined us for that wrath. So let's see, in verses 7 and 8, one expression of God's sovereign control over his people. Verse 7, Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I'll go out. And then Moses goes away from Pharaoh in hot anger. In all the preceding plagues, you've heard me comment that God has often made distinction between Goshen, or where his people are, and the rest of Egypt. That distinction here is made really vivid in this analogy. So you have all the Egyptians. They are screaming in anguish throughout the country as death visits every home. Which, by the way, you might be wondering, well, no, not. The Bible tells us later that every home suffered death. While all of that anguish and torment is happening, not even a dog. Now, in, some of you are dog people, and, and dogs are like family, and you say things that are hard for me to understand, like you're your dog's mom or dad. It's hard for me to understand, but... You do you. This isn't meant to be a sermon about that. That'll be in a couple of weeks. Our pets are very precious to us. When he refers to dogs, let's make the cultural distinction. He's referring to street scoundrels, street uh, scavengers, the word I mean to say. Street scavengers. Pests, not pets. An inconvenience to the people. And Moses says, even the lowest of all things in Egypt won't so much as growl against an Israelite. While you experience unimaginable grief, dogs won't even raise their lip and growl at an an Israelite. Because God is sovereign over his people. Moses announces to Pharaoh that God is going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And in making distinction, there will be another role reversal. God's people will be favored and cared for And the Egyptians who had for 400 years oppressed those people 
are going to be in torment, crying out. And then Moses says, the time will come when everyone else in Pharaoh's kingdom will fall on their knees and plead for the people to leave. When Moses and the the Israelite supervisors had come to plead with Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, no, in fact, I'm going to double the work. I'm going to increase the work and take away the straw. And now, through the hand of God, even the council, even the cabinet members, are going to step down and go and plead with Moses in defiance of Pharaoh to leave the land. Moses' anger in leaving is an expression of Moses' disgust at the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. You are going to bring death to every home in Egypt in your hard-hearted rebellion. But God is sovereign over his enemies and over his people. Let me ask a question about the partiality, which becomes more vivid in the 10th plague than even the previous one. The partiality. Why? Were the Israelites somehow better as people? Less guilty of Adam's fall? More faith-filled? No, they have already doubted often. And we're going to study the rest of the Exodus and find that these these Israelites don't exhibit spectacular faith. So why the vivid partiality? We'll find out in chapter 12. The covenant sealed in blood. The blood on the doorpost. By the way, could I just mention here that in Moses' warning to Pharaoh, there's no word of deliverance that's provided. Okay, don't let the people go, but for everyone else in Egypt who does believe, spread blood above the doorpost of your house and the death will pass over your house. There's no, there's no provision like that for the Egyptian family. But we'll see more about that in chapter 12. <clears throat> the reason for the partiality is a covenant. It's that God said to Abraham, your people are mine. And this covenant will be sealed with blood. And Israel doesn't even know that yet. Israel doesn't even yet comprehend Genesis 3. That one born of woman is going to come and deliver the people of covenant promise from eternal wrath.
the revelation we have here is not revelation of a fickle or indecisive God. When it comes time for final judgment, will you be his enemy or will you be his covenant child? Will the blood of Christ plead for you or will the blood of Christ be forever a salvation squandered? The only discriminant issue in eternity is the blood of the Lamb. And the only discriminant issue between Israel and Egypt is the blood, the covenant sign of blood. God is sovereign over the future. God is sovereign over his enemies. God is sovereign over his people. And then once again, the chapter ends with God's expression of sovereignty over human heart. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. A nation full of locusts. Hail that kills anything left outside. Times 10. The wonders of God are multiplied. Moses and Aaron... In verse 10, did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. These words in verse 9 are essentially a summary of what God had said before. Further evidence that God is sovereign over the future. God had already told Moses this is the way it was going to be. Verse 10 reminds us that the reader... Or it reminds the reader that the sovereign work of God over Pharaoh's heart had not been an arbitrary act of God's frustration. God is not taking it out on Pharaoh. You've been difficult. Now I'm going to make it as terrible as possible. Not God. But rather the revelation of his works being done through Pharaoh. And the revelation of God is anything but arbitrary. Pharaoh continues to resist. Even though he has had the full revelation. He resists. Why? Why did Pharaoh resist? There's a both-and answer to that. Because he hardened his heart against what was being revealed. And so that the wonders of God might be made known, God kept that heart where it already was. I I just want to repeat from last week. God is not hardening an otherwise repentant heart. The only way the heart would have otherwise been repentant is if God had softened it. That's the nature of the new covenant. He says in Jeremiah 31, I will put in the place of a heart of stone a heart of flesh. There's no unrepentant, would-be 
Christian who's been hardened by God. They're only otherwise unrepentant rebels who have been softened by God. It's the only way it is for a sovereign God. Anything else is less than biblical theology. Pharaoh hardens his heart even though he has had this front row seat. You remember when Jesus came and asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And the confession is the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And what was Jesus' response to that accurate confession? Flesh and blood has not revealed this. You didn't come to this conclusion by your wit. You didn't come to this conclusion by your experience. But the Spirit of God has made it known. Imagine being a disciple of Christ, walking from place to place, watching him raise the dead, watching him feed thousands. And when it comes to you getting it right, you're told you didn't get it right because of your experience. You didn't get it right because you had more information than other people have. And oh, how much more information. You got it right because the Spirit worked. Because God is sovereign over the human heart. This is the testimony of God's sovereignty. This is the revelation that we desperately depend on God. The God who is made known to us is evidently supreme in power and authority. Nothing in creation or no creature in creation operates outside of his will or his rule. My mouth says that easily. My heart and my hands operate in that slowly. There's nothing that operates outside of the sovereign control of God. That is easy for me to say. It's been shown to me from Scripture. But maybe you can relate to how hard it is to function in that truth. When joy and hope and faith would be dashed because circumstances threaten that confession. And so God puts us in communities where we remind each other of Exodus 11, where we pray for each other, where we encourage each other, where we bear each other's burdens and fulfill his law. We grieve with the grieving. We rejoice with the rejoicing. And we are not in isolation, not in a vacuum of doubting. Is God for me? And if he's for me, is he capable? And we encourage each other with the promises of the covenant in Christ. 
We know him truly. But so many don't. They operate all around us with other versions of God, of deities. They operate all around us. In the darkness of ignorance. The prophets, Hosea. Hosea is told that there is grieving because people perish for lack of understanding. What has just been handled by us in these moments is completely unknown to so many people. We know him truly. So here's my pastoral hope. My prayer, as I'll close in prayer, is that we not look at this revelation and find it amusing or entertaining, but that we understand that this revelation has come to us not to hoard, but to share. I hope that we are not merely amused, but that we are compelled. First, compelled to be consecrated to this sovereign God. Be reconciled by the blood of Christ. So if you're here in the room, my plea to you is be made right with this sovereign God. And not by your self-accomplishment. But only under the blood of Christ. So, so if I could speak a spiritually lang- spiritual language. Run to the bottom of the cross. And be covered in the righteousness of Christ. So if you're here, my plea is be reconciled to God. He is sovereign over his enemies. He is sovereign over his people. And then my prayer is that as the church gathers, and it's such a blessing, but that the church would also eagerly scatter. Go into the world and preach repentance. Go into the world and share the revelation that we have graciously been given in Scripture. Aaron, I appreciate you calling us to thoughtful thanksgiving. It was appropriate and helpful. And as I sat, I thought about the Scripture. Thank you, God, that we have the Scripture. We have this revelation. Let's steward it to his glory. Let's do with the revelation the same thing God was doing in the plagues that the world may know. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for the revelation of Holy Scripture. I am grateful for its preservation from the very 
breath of your spirit to the binding and handling of it today. We have been taught again a truth with an eternal weight of glory. The truth of who you are. We have walked through the revelation of your ten plagues. Oh, Lord God, awesome and holy are you. We have seen a merciful partiality toward people in your covenant and people outside. All this has been made known to us. And we rejoice in it. But Lord, mature in us and grow in us a gladness and a delight in recounting this revelation. That the people who come into contact us with us will not perish for lack of understanding. That this understanding would be spoken by your people. As Moses came and spoke to the unrepentant Pharaoh, Lord, would we go and speak to those in need of repentance? That death is coming. But all those who are under the blood are saved. So encourage us gladly enjoy the work of being heralds of this revelation that you've graciously given to us. In Jesus' name, we pray to you and we pray for each other. Amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing.